So welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast with me, Ruby Warrington. I'm very excited to introduce you all to today's guest, who is Africa Brooke. Africa, I first heard about your work through our mutual friend, Ella Grace Denton. I was in London a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago, actually now, gosh, time is flying. (laughs) It does, right? doing some promotion for Sober Curious and I was a guest on Ella's podcast and your name came up as somebody else who is being very um, sober positive. I'm going to use that term. I don't know if that term is used a lot, but (laughs) somebody who else was, who was being very open about sobriety as a, as a key component in your work, not only in your life personally, but also in your work and your sort of mission in the world. Um, So welcome Africa. Before I go any further with my introduction, welcome Thank you. Thank you so much. Like I was saying before we started recording, I'm very, very excited to be on this podcast with you. I think what you're doing is incredible. And even before we we connected, so many people have told me about your book. So many people have told me that I needed to speak with you. So I feel like the stars were aligning when you contacted me. So I'm so grateful that you invited me. Thank you. Well, likewise. (laughs) And what I was going to say, you know, I went on Ella's podcast and your name came up. And I think it was one of those weeks where just kind of almost probably three or four people then mentioned you after that. And I thought, okay, yeah, I need to check this woman out. And then I looked at your platform and everything that you're doing. And it's so aligned with not just my own, you know, my, my personal beliefs, but also the bigger mission and the kind of bigger picture Mm. I see of Sober Curious. So you are um, a mindset and empowerment coach. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be focusing on helping women or women, every, yes. p- women specifically overcome mm-hmm. issues with self-sabotage and self-esteem. Yes. And you're also the founder of something called Cherry Revolution. And I'm going to mm-hmm. read this, which is a <laughs> movement that aims to break societal norms surrounding women, identity and sexuality by making shameless pleasure a priority. Yes. So there we have a trifecta of factors. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're sober and openly sober positive. You're all about helping women overcome self-sabotage and mm-hmm. you're passionate about making, taking the tag guilty away from pleasure. Like that, even just mm. that of like, why do we even have the term guilty? Pleasure? Right. So anyway, right. these, 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 this confluence <laughs> of factors, I was like, okay, Africa is going to be the perfect person to speak to about something I mentioned in the book, but which I haven't necessarily got deep into in a kind of public discourse anywhere, which is this idea that perhaps us using alcohol and relying on alcohol so heavily in our lives, as well as other substances, speaks to what I call a pleasure deficit in our society. This idea that actually we are made to feel very guilty and shameful about wanting to experience pleasure and therefore our routes to experience it are very, very limited in all sorts mm. of ways. So I really want to get into that deeply with you. But yes. before we go there, let's start with a bit about your your journey with sobriety and your kind of sobriety mm-hmm. story. Could you just yes. begin at the beginning? <laughs> of course, of course. So I will begin at when I decided to get sober, or I should say when sobriety finally stuck. And that was in 2016. Mm-hmm. So I had tried seven times to get sober. And I mean consciously, as in actually making a very informed decision to get sober seven times. And that doesn't include the times I said, I'm never drinking again, which I'm sure goes well into the thousands. But 
2016 is when I got sober from blackout drinking. I was a blackout drinker. Binge drinking was the only way I knew how to drink. And I say the only way I knew how, because from the first time that I drank when I was 14 years old, I was binging. It wasn't for the taste, as you, as you can imagine. It wasn't for the taste. It wasn't for any other profound reason than to get drunk. So that did create a pattern whereby mm. that's the only way I was drinking for the next decade up until I was 24 when I stopped. But one thing that happened the very first time and every time after is that I would black out. But I truly believed that happened to everyone. Mm. First of all, because the people that I spoke to and kind of told about it, told me that it happened to them. Um, and they kind of normalized it. So it again, which I think is something that you speak about quite often, the fact that it's normalized. And I know mm. we know all of that. But what tends to happen is that we surround ourselves by people that either have the same behavioral patterns. And that's what I did. So everyone was sort of reinforcing the way that I drunk. But as I got older and started putting myself in different spaces, for example, more professional spaces, the way that I drunk didn't really quite work in the same way anymore but I just did not know how to change it I tried moderating I tried the whole approach of having one drink and, and then swapping with water having a plan before I leave the house but that seemed like more of a trap for me moderation was more of a trap for me mm -hmm. um I just started getting myself into situations that that started to get very, very out of control. Um, casual sex was a very big part of my life. And I don't think there's anything wrong with casual, safe, consensual sex. But the sex I was having, I was way too drunk to even consent. I would not remember anything about it. But because I had been doing it for such a long time, I had also normalized it. So it was just a big clusterfuck for about a decade. And what changed in 2016 was the fact that I was in a relationship. I was in a long-term relationship for two years. And my drinking was only getting worse. My blackouts were getting longer. And on the last time that I drank, I was in a blackout for about eight to ten hours. I, I think it was closer to ten hours. And I woke up with a deep knowing that if something does not change today, regardless of how much I've tried before, that if something doesn't change today, I will lose my life. Mm. And I don't say that lightly because I would find myself in really, really distressing situations. Some of which, regardless of how openly I talk about it, some of which actually makes me feel a lot of pain to speak about the details. But I knew on that day, on the 7th of November in 2016, that I had to get sober. And I'd never used the term sober in that way before. Before I had just said things like, I'm not drinking anymore. But that was always for other people. And for me, when I started identifying with the word sobriety, I knew that it was something much bigger. And I, I knew, I didn't quite know it then, but I knew that it was something that went beyond the alcohol itself, that I had to get soul sober. Mm. So, now it's going to be three years in November of this year. And every time I say that out loud, I never thought the day would come, Ruby, when I could say that, when I could say I don't drink anymore, because that was my life. And that, that was a big part of my identity, the party girl identity, mm. the person who could stay up for, for days and not want to sleep, the person who never wanted to leave. But all of that became very problematic and it swallowed me whole. So getting sober was 
my last resort, but it was also the thing that saved my life. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that so many people are going to be able to relate. There are several mm. things that came, come, came up that I'd love to just kind of like backtrack to. Yeah. What do you think it was at age 14 that so appealed to you about getting blind drunk? Like what were you, what were you, what were you numbing or what were you hoping to attain? Yeah. What was it that was so appealing? I'm always really fascinated with what it yeah. is about the experience of being drunk that's so very yeah. appealing to people. Because I think we have this, we have ideas about it means this or it means that, but I think it's actually very individual. Yes, 100%. And I love that you asked that because I think my story would be very different from the average British girl, I'm sure. Because I actually moved to the UK when I was nine years old. So I moved from Zimbabwe and mm. in, in Africa. Mm. And I I was old enough to still remember exactly where I'm from and what my country is like, what the cultures and traditions are. But I was also young enough to be able to want to fit into this new place that I'm in. So by the time I was 14, I hadn't been in the country for that, that long. Mm. Um, so what happened was the fact that when I, I always say that when I came to the UK was the first time that I realized that I was a black girl because that was not something I ever had to think of. I never had to think about that right. before. And it doesn't help that we moved to Kent where it's... <laughs> I, I'm laughing. We have a lot of American listeners. People might not know. I'm trying to think. It's probably a bit like um, for New Yorkers, Connecticut. Like it's super yes. white picket fence, very yes. quote unquote traditional. Yeah, Exactly. Very conservative suburbia. Mm. Um, and this was in 2003. Mm-hmm. So by the time I was in school, at that time, it wasn't as diverse as maybe it is now. And at that time as well, people weren't as aware as they are now of the world. Ignorance was still very much acceptable. Mm. So when we went to school, my sister and I, and maybe one other boy in the school were the only black people in the school. So I did face a lot of um, racism when I was just coming to the country, just Mm. trying to fit in, trying to make sense of this new reality. So by the time I was 14 years old, I, I was in a stage of finding other boys attractive and other girls were kind of getting to the stage of having boyfriends and that kind of thing. But I saw that for me, it wasn't the same as everyone else. I wasn't getting the same kind of attention. So what happened around that time is that I did start to have a safe set of friends who I could rely on, who I could speak to, but they were also starting to experiment with certain things. And I would have done anything I could to also fit in. So we would go to the park for, for some time I did avoid drinking because it just wasn't who I was. It wasn't a part of my culture in any way. No one in my family drunk. Mm. Well, my father was an alcoholic, but that was the extreme of it no one drunk on a casual in a in a casual way um so for the first few times i sort of avoided it but then there comes a time when people start to question where your friends start to question why you're not drinking why you're not joining in the fun and then on that day in the park i did i was like you know what fuck it i'm going to do it it looks like fun yeah. it looks like everyone else is having fun so i might as well just join in And an incredible thing happened that day because when I drunk, it's as if all my insecurities just 
went away. It's as if someone just turned down the dial and I didn't have to think about my color. I didn't have to think about the fact that I wasn't having boys flocking to me. I didn't have to think about any of that. I suddenly felt desirable. Whatever type of desire you can feel at 14, which is probably Mm. just feeling more flirty and kind of just Mm. confident. Mm. I felt all of that. So that again showed me how easy it could be to silence the noise in my head and that was where the fascination was for me so it was never about the getting drunk part that that didn't entice me in any kind of way but when I eventually gave into the peer pressure what I was hooked on which I I always say I don't think it was the alcohol itself Mm. it was that psychological Mm. shift that happened after a few drinks after half an hour that ease that came and that's what I would say hooked me when I was 14. Absolutely and I think actually Mm. people people who who are in their sobriety will be able to relate to that like I have definitely friends who I don't go to AA, but people who have mm. kind of got sober curious and found their way into that program who were like, whoa, I didn't ever realize. And yeah, it's so true that alcohol itself is not the problem. It's what I was using it to cover up. It was those feelings yes. of insecurity or otherness or yes. just like, yeah, exactly. Lack of confidence or whatever it was. Yeah. And you touched on something as well, which I brought up in the first episode of this podcast, which was just a solo cast. Mm. alcohol does it disables the part of our brain that monitors what other people think of us like literally and so we are feeling oppressed by whatever labels are being placed on our physicality because of how we look or the color of our skin or like how we express ourselves like whatever those labels might be she's shy she's black she's boring Mm. she's sophisticated alcohol just removes all of the labels and that's what we all want. I think that's what's so appealing yeah. about it, right? We want to be able to just live without all those labels being placed on us and all of the kind of like, yeah, the prejudices that come with that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I love that because I was, it's definitely about removing those labels. But I think another thing that I was obsessed with was using it to create new labels for myself. Mm. So create labels right. whereby I could be the person that is, enticing the entire room where I was the party girl again as I was saying before was a label that I latched onto so Mm. fiercely Mm. and everyone seemed to love it so much so I was using it to to sort of remove these other labels that I felt were kind of pulling me down and I was putting these new ones that were also pulling me down but on the surface they were just allowing me to be this this really seemingly unattainable idea of myself so I think that's a yeah that's a very very good way to to look at it no but I like the fact that you're talking about there's some some labels that we want right some yes are seen as desirable why do you think that that party girl label is mm. so appealing like gosh this actually I'm gonna this, a study came out I was reading about it at the weekend yeah and this will lead back to it so there was a study that came out and it showed that women who Women who have a drink in their hand are perceived as being more sexually available and more up for it. Wow. This is like, I have to send you the link to this. It's yes. And also, this is the darker side, if that wasn't dark enough, actually, less human. So there's something wow. a woman holding a drink that where the perception of her is that she's more sexually available, more up for it, more of a, shall we say, party girl, right? There's mm. that, I think it's really interwoven. All right. Yeah. You said that something about alcohol made you feel like you were more attractive or more yes. appealing. Yeah. There's something, isn't there, in our conditioning that says that being kind of like 
loose, uninhibited, etc. Yes. More sexually attractive. Yes, 100%. And that ties in with a lot of my work, actually, and where mm. the root of the cherry revolution came from. Because for me, I realized that from a very young age, I was always trying to get the approval of men. That was mm. a very, very big thing for me, starting from classic my dad mm-hmm. and kind of going into going into school just wanting that approval women's approval that was great but I could do without that but it was always about men's approval and that that's why whenever I talk about alcohol the things like um desire me feeling more attractive me feeling sexually available being sexually available was also a very very important thing for me because for a long time I truly believed that that was all I could offer and I thought that that was something that I had to give Mm. so a big part of why I drank in the way that I did was so I could appear sexually available and just desirable to men that was a very very big part of it actually mm. and I truly believe that it is that way for a lot of people mm. because from the people that I've spoken to in my research and some of the work that I've done women and non-binary people will also tell you that is the biggest reason why they drink so that they can feel more comfortable in their own body but not for them so yeah. that their body can be ready for other people for men so it is a very it is a very dark thing and it, it feels I, I think it's quite liberating to say this out loud because I don't think I've, I've ever said it out loud in this way, but it's almost like when the puzzle starts to really fall into place. But I think that was a very big thing for me. Yeah, it was. Absolutely. And like you mm. said, there's nothing there's nothing like morally wrong with wanting to have yeah. casual sex or wanting to get into situations where that's available to you. But you also said, and I talk about this in my book, like, sex when you're in a blackout like blackout sex is not only like not necessarily pleasurable but it can also be fucking dangerous like I, I yes in my book and I wonder if this is something you've come I was I was really I guess like shocked is the wrong word because it actually didn't surprise me but it's like oh shit, mm. yeah, we don't think about it like that but alcohol is the number one date rape drug yes. we, wor- we worry about what might be put into our drink without even questioning how we're incapacitating ourselves yeah how we're disabling our inhibitions, how we're, as you commented earlier, putting ourselves in a position where we're actually unable to give full consent. Yeah. And we get drunk, particularly when we get drunk to the point of blacking out. Yeah. And that's not, that's not something that I ever, ever thought about. No. I feel as though my safety was the thing that I thought of last, if yeah. at all. If at all, my biggest worry when I would wake up in a strange bed miles and miles away from the last location I remember was how am I going to get home? Was how much is a taxi from Surrey back to West London? Because I I have no idea how I even... (laughs) Because I have no idea how I even ended up there. And in the same way that I'm laughing now, this is the same way I would retell the story to my Mm. friendship groups. Mm. I would laugh about it. I would feed back into that persona of the party girl. Africa's just a little bit wild. I would have more stories. she's having a great time. Wow. She's having a fantastic time. I would have more stories to tell. And because we just have to be honest about certain things, when you look a certain way, for example, if you're attractive or pretty or beautiful to other people, they receive these stories in a way that... um, they wouldn't necessarily receive them if you looked, uh, if you looked in a way that aligns with their idea for someone who has a problem. Yeah. But because I looked fine, because I still 
dressed up because I still showed up. I still went to work. I wasn't drinking every day, you know, so it adds to this, there's this kind of romantic idea of what was actually happening, regardless of how dangerous it is and mm. how extreme the situation is. It just fed into this idea and this identity that I was crafting because there's no one else that was doing it. I wanted that. I really, truly wanted that. And I know that it, it stems from me not feeling like I was enough in school. Mm. It stems from me always being on the outside of the friendship circle. But then when I started to get older, I was getting all of this attention and suddenly I was in the middle of it. And I felt like alcohol was the thing that had taken me there. I mm. truly believed that it was nothing to do with me being a great person or me being, God forbid, genuinely fun, that it was it was all alcohol and i think we give it too much fucking credit <laughs> we give it too much fucking credit because we feel like we could never match up to what it could do yeah and that's that's what i had to begin really discovering after once i decided to get sober that's the journey i had to go on to try and be some of those incredible things without it and yeah. that is the hard but very worth it part it is, it is. And yeah. I guess that feeds into the kind of work you're doing now, which is about yeah. empowering people, helping people shift their mindsets and people getting over this, um, this self-sabotaging that we do. Yes. Can, we, can we talk a little bit about alcohol and self-sabotage? Because I truly believe that as much as I felt like I, for me similarly, right, alcohol mm-hmm. really helped me to become or to seem like this kind of popular party girl who was at all the right parties, who had this really cool job, who mm. summer's in Ibiza, like all of the things. Al- alcohol was an absolutely integral part to all of that. And yet thinking about how my life, let alone my career has progressed since I quit drinking, I wonder how much I was actually self-sabotaging through my reliance on alcohol mm-hmm. without necessarily realizing, or maybe subconsciously I was realizing it. What yeah. I, think is that I, I, was, I was using alcohol as a way to stay smaller than I sort of on a subconscious level knew I could be because actually yes. being bolder in the world, like with the things I really wanted to bring forth, that, like the opinions, the yes. articles, the projects, the books, whatever, that I really felt truly like I was here to bring forth. That's a really scary concept because therein mm. has so much potential for rejection, so much potential yeah. for being, you know, shut down, all of those things. So again, it's this kind of like slippery relationship, right? Is alcohol helping me be more confident and succeed and progress further in my career or in my peer group mm. or whatever? Or am I using it to subtly hold myself back and yes. prevent myself from actually stepping onto the, the bigger stage where I can potentially shine bolder, but comes with so much more risk? Yes. <laughs> oh, I love, I love, love, love all of that. And I am personally fascinated with self-sabotage because I know it's something that we all do Mm. on varying levels. It's Mm. something that we all do and it's very much tied to our belief system. Mm. So So on a conscious level, intellectually especially, you could know all the things. You know that you're not supposed to drink. You know that you're not supposed to see that very toxic partner. You know all of these things. But on a con- on a subconscious level, which is where we actually operate the most, that's where our habits, patterns, and our defaults are. So we operate on our subconscious more than the conscious. And we can know all of these things. But if you believe that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, and that you're not deserving, which are usually the most common beliefs 
Mm. You're, there will always be some dissonance in your, in your actions versus what you say you want. And I'm fascinated with self-sabotage because I truly believe that it's the people that want more from life. It's the people that want to be successful, whatever their definition of success is. Mm. It's the people that want more and know that they're capable of more that tend to do it because they feel like they're not worthy they're not deserving or that they're not enough. And I know that my, my tendency to self-sabotage was because I thought that I have to play small, that I can't be the person in my family that breaks out of the blueprint, the blueprint of struggle. Because I've also, um, in the past year, I had, I identified that I have a fear of success which a lot of people have without realizing it. So because you have this very deep fear of success, maybe that you shouldn't be um, too successful or you will seem like a snob to your family. I know that was one of mine. Or that I can't earn more than my mother. Um, Or that work should be hard. That I can't enjoy the money that I earn if it comes too easily. So I would sabotage myself so I can fulfill those beliefs. So there are so many reasons as to why we do it. But when it comes to alcohol for me, I knew from the first time that I drank, I knew that there was something wrong. When I woke up the next morning and I didn't feel just on an intuitive level, on a, on a soul level, I knew that something was not right. But on a human level, I just wanted to connect. I just Mm. wanted to connect with people. Mm. And when you're that young, or actually any age for that matter, we choose the things that don't serve us because they make us feel connected. Very, it's like instant gratification. And there can be a lot of loneliness that comes when you choose yourself. Because a lot of people out there just aren't, aren't choosing themselves and just aren't able, they don't know it's an option. So for me, I knew the seven times that I tried to get sober and it didn't stick, it was because I just wanted to hang out with my friends again. I just wanted to not have to be that person that has to be on this journey of betterment, of spiritual enlightenment. I just wanted to just to just get drunk and just ignore the noise and just be with other people again because no one else was on this journey. Mm. So I say this to say that I think we sabotage ourselves sometimes, most of the time, because it can come with a lot of loneliness to actually choose yourself and to do the right thing. <laughs> I'm glad you kind of rounded up with that because I made a note. It's like, come yeah. back to the loneliness of yourself. So let's get into that. The loneliness of choosing yourself. I'm just like, my heart's mm. breaking over that idea. Mm. I feel it as well. It's like, oof, it takes so much um, to go against the grain and to mark yourself as an outsider in a way. But we, if we embrace the idea that we are all com- utterly unique, right? We all, yeah. have complete, we all have an utterly unique personal story, right? Mm-hmm. What, the circumstances of our birth, of our lineage are unique for each and every single one of us. And so inherently by birth, we are all completely individual, in our, yeah. in our views of the world, in our experience of the world, right? And yet it's so painful and lonely to embrace that individuality, or at least it has been, that the systems that we operate under are kind of designed to erase those differences in a way. And mm. in this very one-track mentality about like what success looks like, what it means to be a good person, yeah. what it means to have fun like all of the things right Mm. if we're all on this one track it's easier to sell us stuff whether it's (laughs) whether it's 
things to spend our money on, whether it's politicians to vote for, like it's easy yeah. to sell us things if we all think we, ha- we want the same and we all think we're made the same. So mm. this is c- conditioning, isn't there, to keep us in this like, we're all the same, it's better if we're all the same. And I think mm. what we're seeing now is an actual, an awakening to the idea that it's okay to yes. like not only is it okay to be different and unique, it is our birthright and it's from that place of uniqueness that we can actually make a real impact as individuals on the yes. world. But yeah, in the mean, in, in the interim, <laughs> it can feel really lonely. So yes. what do you, how do you kind of like work with people to get beyond that, to feel like it's okay to be unique, to, to understand that perhaps there will be some months, maybe even years of feeling lonely, of feeling mm. separate while you kind of like tend to cultivating your, your uniqueness and your individuality. What, how, what are yeah. some tools or tips you can share on that? I always say the first thing, because I know that, for example, if we're still kind of talking about alcohol and just not mm. drinking anymore, mm. I know that the first thing is fun. The, the kind of fun piece is a big one for so many people. So I always say, okay, let's, redefine your idea of fun because what you will tend to find is that removing alcohol you probably don't enjoy 90% of the things that you think you do (laughs) you probably do not enjoy those things because I know that I I cannot stand being in a club or being in a party somewhere really loud I just it's just not for me but I truly believed that was my zone I I truly thought that is where I need to be and late nights I just can't do it I'm a very I'm someone that loves solitude and before I used to equate that to loneliness mm. I used to equate that to not being enough I felt like I needed so many people around me but when you start to redefine what these things mean for you you will find that most of the things that you've been giving your attention you just can't do it if alcohol is not involved so I think redefining your idea of fun even if it's just writing things down Mm. that that was very very useful in my journey and I think as much as I say that there is some loneliness that comes to any kind of growth process I think it also allows you to welcome in the best people for you and it allows you to build relationships that are based on honesty. I I found one of the best things for me was that at the time that I got sober, I was also starting a new job and it was a beautiful thing to know that I get to walk into this place and create a new a new way of being. I get to be me right now. Not people expecting me to be the person from the past. Maybe they know I don't drink, but they still expect me to find the same jokes funny. Because mm. that's another thing that happens. You just don't find certain things funny anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't find certain things funny anymore. And it was... <laughs> It was amazing, but maybe for you, it's not going to be a new job. But when you start going to different spaces, maybe the trying different coffee shops or just going to just different, I I feel like, and this is common for a lot of people, people, places and things. Mm. I think once you start to change those things, a lot of things can come in and you won't feel that loneliness. And even though it's a, it might be an inner loneliness, I think exchange, changing your external surroundings really makes a difference but it's just about redefining what you thought was fun what you thought was enjoyable what you thought connection was and I think it can really allow you to welcome in the right things and also I'll add what you thought Mm. honest relationships were it's only since um my own sobriety that I've realized 
how many times, how I could be super open, super open, super open. But when it got too uncomfortable, like that little extra, like turning mm-hmm. up the dial up to 11 on the honesty, I would, <laughs> I would shut down and just kind of yeah. like, just not go there. And because I'd had a few drinks, it didn't really matter. We were just on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Finding myself in relationships now, whether it's with my husband or whether it's my friends or whether it's with my family and actually f- saying the thing, like the really, really honest things. So, yes. so frightening and so vulnerable. And yet that, those interactions, that 1%, of the interactions that can be so scary. Those are the ones that create real connection, I think. Yes. And real deep kind of like understanding, empathy, like all of the, all of the things that really mm. connection, I think, you know? Yeah. And I just think it's so sad that, well, I, I don't have any regrets about my past, but that our mm-hmm. society again, kind of, you know, consistently we see it in every bloody movie and every tv show as soon as yes. someone wants to have a real conversation it's like let's have a drink yes you know it's 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 quite frightening how much you notice it once you take that thing away actually i think this goes for a lot of things if you just think about that thing that you rely on all the time but you know it's not quite good for you when you take it away first of all you see how much it's been impacting your life mm. but especially if it's something that is globally seen as acceptable and has some advertising and branding and marketing (laughs) you start to see that it's everywhere and that it Mm. permeates every single wall in the space that you exist in because i don't think i ever realized just how much alcohol is everywhere and the fact that you don't even have to i i still haven't quite understood how we are in a time where we've learned so much, we've advanced so much in technology, but we're still telling people that they have to use a drug responsibly and that they have to, I just don't understand how it's not regulated in the same way as heroin Mm. or I just really, really don't understand. And from working in advertising myself, I really see the danger. And because I've done a lot of um, work in looking to how, alcohol is advertised to women in particular and it's very very scary because in the 50s etc it was mainly advertised to men and you definitely saw that but now it's advertised to women most of the time and especially when you think of wine when you think of um you know you have things like mummies wine clubs and all of that kind of stuff and it's very 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 harmful but because it's dressed up in such a romantic way we can't see it i think we wait until it gets to the extreme mm. until people exactly. have got to the absolute extreme and then we see it as a problem but otherwise we just we just don't see it we just yeah. don't and it's kind of as much as you know this more and more people are getting sober curious and it's probably because actually millennials and gen z's are typically sort of drinking less and less. Mm. I mean, I I was shocked. I saw Refinery29 had done a paid partnership with a brand the other day. It's called Summer Water. It's a rosé, a brand of rosé that's called Summer Water. And it's a subscription. It's rosé subscription. So God forbid that you should forget, you should like run out by the end of the month because a new delivery is going to be right there. And it was something like $350 a month. I'm like, how? It's just, I don't like to moralize necessarily. Because what's right for me isn't necessarily right for everyone. And yet just the mentality around that, it seemed like it was Mm. so very calculated Mm. to just make sure that this is, I don't know, branded, packaged, absolutely perfectly. Yeah. To appeal to women specifically who are in that very kind of, you know, that 
that stage of like working out who I am in the world, what it means to fit in, mm. actually attractive or a yeah. woman, you know, it was just, it's, yeah. it's, it felt quite sinister that one in particular. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I think to be honest, I think it's very important to, to actually address these things because the thing is out there beyond these conversations taking place, people have this idea that this is normal that these brands care about women in the way that they say they do because most of them are kind of under the umbrella of feminist feminist exactly. publications etc yes so it just confuses me how most of these sort of put out this idea that women need wine that wine is a woman's best friend that if you're white middle class and beautiful you should also be doing yoga but drinking so much fucking wine at the same time $350 <laughs> worth a month at least <laughs> I just don't understand. And I think it can, a lot of people are maybe quite scared to have these conversations because they think that people will, will think they're going too far or that people are being too kind of PC. But I think we need to talk about these because mm. alcohol is killing women in particular at really, it's quite shocking the rates. And I think because of the conditioning and the normalization, we ignore the stats. We mm. absolutely just ignore them and still we, until we are directly impacted or other people are. Yeah. So I think being, that's why I love conversations like this because being sober curious, I don't think it's, it's necessarily about you going into recovery because for me, for example, AA didn't work for me. It just didn't, I went once um, and it just did not work for me. But I think just being curious about it and just, connecting with people that are having these honest conversations because when when something is packaged so well and millions of dollars or pounds have been put behind it mm. people just can't see it people mm. just cannot see it and i think there's this idea that wine is better than anything else it's fine but behind closed doors i know that so many people especially women are yearning for these conversations to happen so 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 many and that's why i think it's it is important to just be very honest about what is really going on absolutely it is. it's about <laughs> educating ourselves and in the yeah. thing, like you say of these like million dollar advertising and marketing campaigns we have to have to, to counteract the influence of those conversations. We have to have so yeah. many of these conversations just to keep, yeah. keep us from being brainwashed. Do you know what I mean? You mentioned yeah. you brought up AA and I've been meaning to kind of ask you, like, why was it that this, this round of sobriety has stuck for you? What do you think was different versus the other seven times? Was it just that enough time had passed and you were ready for it? Or what was it that actually has, what, how, have mm. you, how have you walked that path? Like, how have you made it work? For me, this time around, I truly believe that, first of all, I think I was so sick of my own shit that I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. I always say that it wasn't some kind of profound moment of me choosing myself first, or it was nothing like that. When I made that decision, it was because everyone else was so sick of my own, of my shit. Mm. To the point where I was scared that I would lose my partner. Mm. I was scared that I would lose the last single friend that I had. And my relationship with my family was so broken at the time. So I wasn't even really doing it for myself. Mm. I was doing it for other people. And, but around the second or third month, something shifted whereby I started doing it for myself. And I think that was a mindset shift. It was realizing that it was something that went beyond putting down alcohol. 
it was my soul that needed to get sober. I was holding on to a lot of shame. I was holding on to a lot of guilt. I was holding on to a lot of things that were just making me feel so trapped in my own mind and body. So I just went on a deep journey of personal growth and self-development. And I think that's where the shift happened. I think it was a mindset shift. Mm. It was no longer about changing the external and just leaving the, um, the internal exactly as it is. I had to do the work from the inside out. So I think that's what changed in that time. I love the way you describe it as you described earlier as soul mm. sobriety. I got soul yes. sober and that was yes. the difference. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and I think, I think being soul sober is something that can happen even if you're someone that does drink. Mm. Because I think it's about, for me, what I think soul sobriety is, I think it, it's not even about the alcohol itself. It's just about, for example, looking at your belief system, looking at your relationships, looking at your environment, looking at the relationship you have with yourself. And I truly believe that you can do all of those things, whether or not you drink. Right. So I think the way that I define sobriety now today goes beyond alcohol it really really does and I actually make it a point to not center alcohol in my conversations for example if you go onto my Instagram page I don't talk about the alcohol industry all the time I don't, I don't talk about the fact that everyone needs to be sober or in recovery or there's no other way no that's that's really never been my approach I believe that being soul sober is something that should for everyone regardless of what vice they have in their lives so I I always and I never want to give alcohol or the alcohol industry the power by just talking about it I want to show people what can happen if you do choose this part that's why I'm so loud about the way that I speak I'm so loud about my sexuality I'm so loud about my existence because I want people to know that once you get sober or remove that thing, there will come a time when you don't even think about it anymore. For me, I don't think about sobriety every yeah. day. I really, really don't. Yeah. And I believe that if I had taken the route of AA and why AA didn't work for me is this idea that I have to think about it all the fucking time. And I just, and I just don't want to think about that. Yeah. I, I don't feel that is empowering in any way. So I'm always so grateful that I found an alternative. And I think that's another important um, part for anyone listening is that there are so many alternatives. You don't have to do it the one way that everyone says. Try AA because that's usually kind of the immediate and it works for so many people. Mm. But try and see if something else will work. And that requires you to ask yourself, what kind of person am I? For me, I don't really like the idea of being in a circle or a group with people talking about how much of a bad person I am, how I need to forgive myself that I'm an alcoholic. I've never called myself an alcoholic and I don't intend on doing so. I just think I was using a substance at the time that was serving me, seemingly serving me at the time, and now it no longer does. That doesn't mean it was easy to get rid of, but it means that I found an alternative way to really reconnect with myself outside of that vice. So I think I'm, I'm all about showing that there's alternatives and that there comes a point when you don't even have to think about that thing anymore and you can just live your fucking life. I, I think that's more important. <laughs> that is true freedom and empowerment to me. And if ultimately yeah. that's what we're kind of aiming for here, I completely agree. Mm. And I love the fact that you, you know, your sobriety doesn't define you. And yeah, you'll say that exactly. occasionally, one in every 10 posts you might mention. Exactly. And then you're just, like, oh, yeah, by the way, I'm sober. Just on the, <laughs> as an aside, oh, by the way, I'm also sober. But beyond that, let's forget about that. 
but I'm the same. Like, ask me, you know, what's the sober curious approach? I'm like, well, if you're if you're if you're embarking on a kind of sober curious experiment, let's say, I want you to focus barely at all on what you're removing, and pretty much all of your energy on all of the things you want to cultivate in your life. And soon you just won't have any time or energy mm. to think about the thing that you're removing. Yes. It's irrelevant when you're focused on yes. all of the things you want for yourself and your life. Was I'm curious though, was there one kind of like book or teacher or course or something that kind of like sparked that soul journey in you? Um, in terms of sobriety or just kind of personal development? Well, in terms in of that mindset shift that you mm. mentioned. Like you said that after a few months, there was a mindset shift and you began to realize that you were doing this for you and that there yes. was some inner work that you were now prepared to do that yes. you understood would lead to the alcohol piece just kind of falling away. Yeah. I would, in the beginning of my journey, and the thing is I started kind of researching sobriety three years before I actually got sober and I would watch so many talks on YouTube. But the thing is at that time, there was no one talking about sobriety in that kind of way. Just no one was talking about it. And mm. I stumbled across Holly Whitaker, mm. um, hip, hip sobriety, who has now become a wonderful friend, but she was the only person talking about sobriety in a way that connected to me. Um, she was also talking about the fact that she did not believe that she was an alcoholic and she would never call herself that. She was talking about kind of dating. She was talking about all the things that I was worried about because I was very worried about losing my desire. Mm. I was worried about never having sex ever again. I truly believe that I would never be able to have sex ever again. So she was one of the voices having those conversations at a time when no one else was and providing an alternative perspective of sobriety and recovery and outside of that i read a book called um the untethered soul soul i don't know if you've heard of it I by michael a singer my husband read it twice like back to back really yeah it's... and it actually came at a point in his own kind of sober journey where that was a real really? turning point for him and he i haven't read it yet but i keep meaning to oh. he just couldn't he was just like this is the one of all the spiritual, he reads loads yes. of books on spirituality. Yes. He's like, this is the one. <laughs> and that is exactly what I'm about to say. I have read all of the books and I've watched all of the talks, but that book transformed a lot of things for me. And it's not even centered around sobriety or recovery. Mm. It's just about soul searching. And it's about soul searching in a way that depending on what your scale of woo is, you mm. will still be able to connect regardless. <laughs> it's, inc it's incredible. But that book completely transformed my life. And also it was just about taking action. I would watch things that weren't necessarily um, centering recovery and sobriety I that was actually very important for me actually because without even realizing it from the beginning of my journey I've always wanted to still identify as me the reason why on my Instagram and I, I will come back to why I'm saying this but the reason why on my Instagram I don't talk about sobriety as much anymore I always direct people to just scroll just scroll all the way back down because you will see that I was talking about this every single day all the time. But as I started opening up my mind to self-development and my own personal growth, I realized that actually it's not even about the alcohol itself. Like I was saying before, mm. it's about more than that. It's about going back into my childhood and not necessarily unpacking in the trauma and just stewing in it 
none of that, but just really seeing where all of these things come from. Because most of the time you'll find it's not even about alcohol. It's not even about you loving to get drunk and you just wanting to have fun. You will find there's always so much more, right? So for me, it was very important to read literature and I love to read. So it was very important to read things that weren't necessarily directed to alcohol or talking about sobriety but I also made it a point to read research because I'm someone that I love um, reading self-help but I also think data and research is very very important so it was a combination of a lot of things but if there was one single book or a piece of wisdom I would say The Untethered Soul by Michael A. Singer. Get picking up next yes yes (laughs) (laughs) let's get into the pleasure piece then And as we've been talking, I've been wanting to ask, you know, why do you think we get blackouts? Like, where does that Mm. blackout drinking come from? And you, like other of my, I would say, female friends, Mm. definitely sex and casual sex became a part of that blackout kind of drinking um, cycle, I suppose. And which makes me think that there's something, isn't there, around our attitudes towards sex and sexual pleasure and our desire that is transgressive to us mm. we always have to turn off our thinking brain we to turn become unconscious to the yes. fact even possess those desires yes. before we can feel like we're safe or free to engage in them so let's use yes. that as our starting point for talking about <laughs> this kind of pleasure deficit and how drinking and other substance use kind of plays into it yeah about that so I will just kind of take it back a little bit again to when I was 14, because Mm. that was also the first time that I had sex. And the first time that I had sex, alcohol was involved. So my brain, I always say, I truly believe that was the moment that my brain started to associate alcohol and sex. So beyond that, I just did not know how to have sex without alcohol. And if I did, I would feel so much shame. And that shame came from my upbringing. It came from being raised in a Christian household. It came from this idea that self-pleasure, my own pleasure was bad, that it was a bad thing. Because I always, um, in telling this story, I have to talk about the fact that when I was six, my mother found me um, rubbing my clitoris on the corner of the couch because it felt good. I had kind of just been discovering my body, not in a really thought out way, but as children, you touch yourself and something feels good and you kind of go with it. So that's what I was doing. And she didn't, she wasn't angry but she was something much worse which was disappointment and I think anyone will know that disappointment hurts more than anger so her disappointment was attached to the fact that we're Christians and we don't do things like this you don't touch yourself in that kind of way she wasn't sort of mean about it but it was that's when my shame was formed when it comes to my sexual shame so After that point, I still touch myself because, of course, you're going to do that. And especially if you've been told not to do it, you're going to do it even more. But I would feel very guilty. I would feel very bad about it. So as I got older and started having partner sex from the age of 14, because of the fact that I had already realized that alcohol was the thing that could silence everything, it only made sense that alcohol was involved the first time that I had sex. Mm Because if it wasn't, I would feel so much shame and Mm. guilt. Mm. So for me, that is where that comes from. I truly believe that I wasn't supposed to experience pleasure, only the pleasure of a husband. But there was this, this really weird 
so in my family home, there's this idea that we're not supposed to do these things, but all I have to do is walk outside of the house and there's a billboard that has some kind of sexual pleasure message. Everything on TV has some kind of pleasure sexual message. And because I learned from porn, porn was my first teacher. And I think that is the case for a lot of people, actually. There were just so many conflicting messages. So for me, I always used alcohol every time I was having sex. And if I didn't, I would feel so much shame. So drinking in the way that I did, especially blackout drinking, it was as if I was finally allowing myself to feel pleasure Mm -hmm. and to experience some kind of connection and to especially experience connection through the male gaze, which is something that I valued highly. So um, yeah, that connection between alcohol and sex was very strong, very, very strong. Thank you for sharing your story. I think that so many people Mm. are going to see similarities. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, it, it, And again, it kind of like you can sort of zoom out and think about, as you said, all of the kind of advertising messages, all of the imagery we receive and are bombarded with daily is that sex is something so desirable, like pleasure Mm. is so desirable. And yet so much of our cultural conditioning, particularly if we've had any kind of a religious background, which actually the majority of us have, even if we haven't had a particularly religious family, that's the overarching kind of messaging, right? is mm. that ultimately sex is for procreation and that's it. <laughs> yeah. And that happens within kind of like, you know, the marriage unit, heterosexual marriage unit. Yeah. And that's like it. I was just, it's making me think actually, I remember <laughs> my first kind of sex education classes when I was at school. Yeah. Um, I must've been about eight or nine, I guess. Is that when they start with the sex ed? I can't even really remember. I can't but we had remember. to do, our teacher asked us all to write any questions we had about sex on a piece of paper and we just put them in a box and she'd read them out anonymously. And my question was, what does an orgasm feel like? <laughs> wow. Sure I experienced an orgasm by that point, but I just kind of, part of the, the sort of rebel, rebellious kind of me, I was like, I love I ask her, what does an orgasm feel like? <laughs> And the teacher was so embarrassed when she read my question out and just really fluffed it and was something like, oh, it's just like, just like being tickled or something. She didn't go, she glossed over that part of the lesson Mm -hmm. so, so fast, which I think is just indicative, isn't it? Of the fact that we're not taught, when we're taught about sex and the role of sex in our lives, when the pleasure piece is completely not a part of it. And I would say particularly, and this is something I write about um, in Material Girl Mystical World, my first book, actually, and it, there, it is gendered, actually, because for men, you know, self-pleasuring is kind of seen as like, oh, yeah, he's becoming a man now, mm-hmm. and it's very much accepted, whereas for most women, it's just not only not accepted, it's just never even spoken of, yeah. you know? Yeah, and I think the, the shame tying all of this together is astounding because as you said regardless of how the details will differ in terms of my story so many people especially anyone who has a vulva will have experienced that shame on some kind of level and that's something we're never shown in advertising or in movies no one talks about the shame but it's just hanging over everyone and I think for a lot of people for that shame to go away they feel like like they have to drink or that they have to numb themselves in some kind of way in order to explore that. And because we are conditioned, especially as cis women, we are conditioned to look for acceptance and connection in men. So that means that when we're looking for that connection, we, we already see sex as being a part of it, but because we feel that that sex will come with some kind of shame or some kind of rejection, 
it just seems like the obvious option to numb mm. ourselves and to drink. Mm. And especially mm. because we feel that drinking has this, we have this romantic idea of it, that is where our confidence lies, etc. There are so many layers to this, but I, so I truly believe that when it comes to sex and just dating in general, a lot of people can't see themselves being a part of it without alcohol or without some kind of vice. Brene Brown talks in her books, which obviously Brene Brown, for anyone mm. who hasn't, isn't yet familiar, is a shame researcher specifically. And she's also sober. And she talks in her books about how shame is one of the most painful um, and unbearable of emotions because shame yeah. ultimately stems from the belief that there is something wrong with me. And if there's yes. something wrong with me, I will be rejected by my tribe because I'm not, I'm not able to fulfill my role here, you know? So mm. I will be cut out, I will be excommunicated and I will be left to die alone. I mean, that's ultimately yeah. like that, how deep that fear goes. The yeah. Fear. And so shame, yeah, is one of the, the primary emotions I would say that people yeah. are using alcohol for. And as you've illustrated, there's so much shame around sex. So what was your, what's your mission with Cherry Revolution? And like, how are you aiming to address this pleasure, the pleasure deficit? Because ultimately, mm. let's also remember, okay, pleasure is... There's a reason six-year-old you is going to keep doing that, even though yeah. you're told it's wrong. Your body is like, this is part of what I do. <laughs> I need this to, to be exactly. whole and well. And like, this is part of the, the best part of being human, guys. <laughs> right, right. So, <laughs> so my essential wellness company, Cherry Revolution, is actually something that I created as a way of healing my sexual shame. Because what started to happen around the around a year and a half in, into getting sober, a lot of my sexual shame started to bubble to the top. Because of course, I finally had had to deal with a lot of the shit that I'd been suppressing. And part of it was my sexual shame, which was a very, very big part of my story. So I started reading a lot of books on Tantra. And the reason why I particularly love Tantra and Tantric sex is because it was the first thing that was letting me know that it's okay to be slow, that it's okay to want more from sex, that it's okay to want to want so much more beyond penetration because the kind of sex that I was having was very much disconnected. I was having porn sex all the time, even in my relationships, because I didn't know anything else. I discovered porn when I was 10. So even the first time that I had sex, I was replaying a clip that I'd seen, and I'm sure he was too. And that's how sex looked like for me. I did not know what sensuality looks like. And to be honest, I didn't even think I deserved sensuality. And there are so many people out there that don't even think they deserve sensuality. Mm. So when I discovered Tantra, it showed me a different world. I, I realized that it wasn't about having sex for 700 hours on a hill in India. That, <laughs> that was a delicious part of it, but that was not all of it. It just showed me that connection was there and that I deserved sensuality and that I could give it to myself. And the giving it to myself part was a very big thing for me because my inner child, that six-year-old, needed to be told that self-pleasure is okay. So I knew that this journey to healing my sexuality was not about a partner. It was a journey that I had to go on within myself, first of all. And I just started writing about it. And because I'm a writer, I would just write so, so much. 
and I would buy all of these books and read them and share with my friends. But I always felt, and there was, I didn't feel satisfied that these conversations would remain at the lunch table or would remain in my living room or wherever we were. So I realized that I want more people to know that these conversations are taking place. And for me, especially as a black woman, I wanted other black women to know that it is safe for us to have these conversations. And that's a, that's a, another different subject of its own. But when I say safe, I mean that because religion is a big part of most of our communities and because although we're the most sexualized in global society, we are the most sexually repressed. And there are so many reasons as to why that is. So I just wanted other women like myself to know that these conversations should be happening. And I just wanted everyone else to know that it's okay to talk about sex and not just about the pleasurable orgasm part of it, but just about the importance of shameless pleasure that goes beyond sexual contact even. Mm. Just understanding that you deserve pleasure, whatever pleasure is to you that you deserve it. Because I think it starts by us realizing that we deserve it on a non-sexual level to really understand how much you deserve it when it comes to sex. So for me, the goal is to have the, the conversations that no one else really wants to have. And I know that they, there are many conversations taking place, but I feel like most of the conversations in the sexual wellness space center white middle-class women. And I think that is really creating an echo chamber where other people don't feel like they can even be in that space where people that are non-binary think, okay, is this for me or is this not for me? People that are trans, I want them, even though I'm speaking from my voice and my story to understand that shame does not see gender. Sexual shame does not mm. see gender. So for me, it's about having these conversations on a global level. It's about creating spaces on and offline where these things can happen. It's about amplifying other voices, not just marginalized voices as well, but the voices of those that seem to have it all kind of covered, but actually don't. Because I think there are so many ways that all of us are experiencing shame. And even those that are supposedly sexually liberated you will find that once you peel off a few layers we're all going through the same thing and it's so comforting to know that people are talking about it and that is my mission ultimately I love it thank you for sharing that I mean you <laughs> describe yourself as a writer but you're such a good speaker as well you're so eloquent you. I just love everything you said and I'm so happy I'm going to get to share this with all of my listeners oh, I want to just Ruby. kind of I'll touch on some of that probably um as we wrap up but I'm going back mm -hmm. to the, the date that you got sober kind of has a special yeah. significance November 7th 2016 was two days before the U.S. presidential election Wow. And I do believe that what you're talking about, this pleasure deficit, actually really plays into some of the darker forces we've seen kind of like being exposed. Mm. Particularly as you're talking about this idea of who deserves pleasure, why a person deserves pleasure, who is made to feel shameful for experiencing pleasure, or because uh, then we can broaden out pleasure, right? Pleasure, yeah, deserving of pleasure means feeling deserving of life, feeling like you have yeah. that you're an important part of this kind of fabric of humanity, right? And I mm. think what we've seen over the past three years is obviously you know, the messaging that some people are more deserving than others and that that hierarchical kind of like belief and like who gets to have a quote unquote good life is mm -hmm. 
linked to privilege. So I think what you're doing and what you're sharing, you came in at, you got sober just the right time. (laughs) You're putting out some very, very important conversations that actually get to the heart of so much of the the violence, the oppression the, the, mm. that we're seeing kind of like bubbling up under this current administration. So yeah, it's funny, like I'll never stop getting political about this conversation too. The, uh, the only kind of like negative reviews of my book, Sober Curious, have been people saying, it was great until she started talking about politics. And I'm like, you guys, we can't not. Politics, <laughs> you can't not. the root of the word politics is in the word for city. So if we are like citizens, all of us, are, mm. we're, innately, we're innately as social beings, political beings. And so mm. we, have to, we have to think about it we in have those terms, to. I think. So, we so have thank to. you. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I think this was such a wonderful conversation to have. And I think that for, I'd just like to say something to anyone that is listening to this and they're also on their journey. I think you, you will have a lot of people that are listening that, just want to know how they can be part of this. Mm. I think don't, one thing I will say is be very, very compassionate with yourself. There is no right or wrong way to do this. If you know that for you, going completely sober right now is not what you need to do. Then I think the fact that you're even listening to this is an incredible step. Because for me, as I was saying, I was listening to this kind of knowledge three years before I finally knew that this is what I had to do. So for some people, the journey will take longer. And if you do decide to do this, even if after a week, a month, two weeks, a year, you decide that you don't want to do it any longer, I think you need to remember that you are allowed to change your mind at any time. You can change your mind. And I think when you choose yourself, it's not going to be easy, but it will be the best thing you've ever done. If I hadn't got sober we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, yeah. Ruby. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. And I wouldn't have the career that I have right now. I wouldn't be able to work for myself. I wouldn't be able to have incredible relationships, sexual and platonic. And I have managed to have the most wonderful and soul-nourishing relationship with my family because I decided to do this fucking hard thing. That it turned out that this was just the step that I needed to take in order to become free. So I think on the quest for freedom, it will take many forms. It will change, it will shift, it will be glorious, it will be painful, but it will always be worth it. And I think as long as you're here listening to these words, I think that is the first incredible step it really, really is. It is. Thank you. I'm so, so happy to end on that. Africa, it's been incredible <laughs> meeting you. As yes. you said, I feel like we're destined to meet and I hope this is just the yes. of more collaborations to come. <laughs> I believe it is. I truly believe it is. Thank you for having me, Ruby. Thank you. What an incredible woman and what an important conversation to form part of this Sober Curious movement. I want to backtrack just to end up with a little other note on um, my reference to the 2016 US presidential race. I was thinking specifically while I was speaking to Africa about how during during the race before the actual election happened, um, there was, of course, the infamous pussy grabbing incident when the video or the footage rather um, of President Trump talking about grabbing women's pussies was was made available and went viral and I really remember thinking at the time wow if he can get away with that he can really get away with anything um 
and thinking at that time when he wasn't kind of dismissed from the race as a result of that, that there was a high chance he was going to win. Um, and I think I bring this up now, obviously, in reference to the conversation with Africa, because what we've seen since then in so many cases is a reaction in which women are really um, reclaiming our sexuality and our sexual expression. We've obviously also seen the Kavanaugh trial um, come up and more recently than that, the um, changes, potential changes in the abortion laws. And so against, as, a, as an uprising against this, this idea that women's sexuality is something that is not our own, that can be claimed, that can be grabbed at will um, among those more quote-unquote powerful we're seeing a re reaction against that, which is very timely, and I think Africa's work plays a big role in that. So thank you again to Africa for coming on to discuss and get so open and real about what's going on behind the scenes. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. I hope you're enjoying this series as much as I'm enjoying creating these interviews, and I'll see you again soon. This podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. 